If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 20. Where are we at? 25? 25. 1 Samuel chapter 25. As we go through the scriptures, the title of the message this morning is Abigail, Wisdom and Beauty. You know, God is not a respecter of persons. Uh, we have a tendency to be. I don't know where it comes from, this masculine uh, abuse where we just think that we're supposed to be in charge and powerful over everything. But Abigail, just a beautiful picture of a, a woman that is given over to God. And we see the wisdom. We see that she's beautiful and God made her that way and what she's able to do with it. Um, to influence David and uh, to save um, people that would be in her household. And so just an awesome week that I've had being able to study this life, and I'm thankful to God for it. I, I will say that it's difficult for 50% of the population, uh, at least as the church is concerned, because you're always hearing from a man, and so you hear this man's perspective uh, God has raised up the men to be the leaders of the church as pastors. Uh, we believe that, Second Timothy chapter 2. Um, we know that there are churches that do have female pastors. We, uh, we don't believe that that's scriptural. Uh, don't think it's the worst thing in the world. But I think what a, what a struggle to you know, not be able to hear at times a woman's perspective, but I think God gives it to us. And I think he, he does it in a beautiful way. And so I'm thankful for it. And I'm thankful that I can learn <clears throat> incredible things through the women in the Bible that are godly. And so looking forward to this time. Abigail, Wisdom and Beauty is the title of the message, First Samuel 25. Father, we ask your blessing upon this time in your word. We thank you so much for the examples that you give us within the scriptures of individuals who are looking to you, who have taken what you've blessed them with, and are glorifying you with it. And so through their example, Lord, we can understand how to navigate through life. And so we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time. And as always, Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit says to the church this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So last time we were in the book of Samuel chapter 24, we saw David had this incredible victory David was given in his hand, at his disposal, to do what he wanted with his enemy, King Saul. King Saul at this time here in the Bible is trying to kill David, and he's trying to kill him for nothing, whether it's jealousy or just uh, crazy, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs is what I call it. Uh, whatever it is, it's wrong and it's not right, but... Saul would go into a cave that David and his men would be hiding in. His men encouraged David, look, the Lord is giving him to you. You can kill him. Have at him. David goes up and he cuts the edge of his robe off. And with that, uh, he feels guilty. He, he immediately is convicted that he shouldn't have done that and that he shouldn't touch the Lord's anointed. He says that twice. And so as Saul exits the cave, David goes out and follows him and he bows down to him and he tells him, um, look, I could have killed you, but I didn't. And I respect the fact that you're the Lord's anointed. And whatever people are telling you about me trying to hurt you or harm you, I've proven it this day that that's not true. 
And Saul cries and he cries out to David and he lets him know that David is more righteous than him and that he, sh- he recognizes that he shouldn't do that. He's going to continue to try to kill him later. So, I mean, it's like crocodile tears, I call them, that he cries. And so that's kind of where we left off. We left David and Saul parting and going their separate directions. We pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 25. Verse 1 says, Then Samuel died, and the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him and buried him at his home in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And so the death of Samuel, we're going to continue on in the book of Samuel, but Samuel would be that child that Hannah would pray for. And she was barren. She was being provoked by her rival. And it was when her will aligned with God's will that God answered her prayer. And he didn't answer her prayer until that took place. And so God desired a godly man for the nation of Israel. That man would be Samuel. And Hannah was going to bring that man. But she was over here desiring a child for maybe not God's reasons. I can't say that they're for the wrong reasons, but maybe they weren't God's reasons. And it wasn't until her, her will lined up with God's will that God then blessed her with baby Samuel. She would wean him, keep him at home for a season, but and then she would ultimately give him to the priest, Eli. And he would be raised in the house of God and he would serve God all the days of his life. And so he finally comes to death. God's work does not end with man. God used Samuel in a tremendous way, but God's work will continue to go on. And so it is in this world that God does his work. Samuel's heritage lived on in a remarkable way. In 1 Chronicles 9.22, it suggests that he organized the Levites in the service of the sanctuary, which was completed by Daniel and Solomon. In 1 Chronicles 26, verses 27 and 28, it says that Samuel began collecting treasures for building the temple in um, in Solomon's day. In 2 Chronicles 35, verse 18, it reports that Samuel remembered the Passover and kept Israel in remembrance of God's great deliverance. In Psalm 99, verse 6, and Jeremiah 15, 1, it commemorates Samuel as a man of great intercession. And in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verses 32 and 33, it puts Samuel in the hall of faith. And so just an incredible guy, a guy working behind the scenes, a guy that was just being faithful to what God had called him to, his life ends. The nation of Israel would ask for a king as Samuel's sons were coming up in the ministry, but they weren't like Samuel. They didn't have the heart of Samuel. And so because of that, they were scoundrels or they were doing things that they weren't, but they were stealing money from the temple and the people, the nation of Israel was able to see that. And so they told Samuel that, nah, we need a king because your kids are nothing like you and we don't want to see them. You're getting old, you're going to die pretty soon. And so Samuel took that personal because he was faithful to God, but God told them, they've not rejected you, Samuel, they've rejected me as their king. And so that's where this king and everything would take place. So Samuel is now dead. We move on, verses 2 and 3. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. 
But the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. Just an interesting couple here. We're introduced to these two people. Um, What's his name? Nabal? Nabal, which means fool. And Abigail, which means um, joy of my father, is what her name ends up meaning. And so he's foolish because he's evil. And it says it right there that he's evil and he's harsh. He's harsh and he's an evil man. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And so though he's rich, he's rich in only finances or he's rich in only one way. The Bible speaks or there are different kinds of riches that we can possess. There are riches in what we have, riches in what we do, riches in what we know, and riches in what we, uh, you are, or riches of character. Nabal was a very rich man, but only rich in what he had. He had the lowest kinds of riches. And so it's neat to be able to have finances, but being rich with finances is only rich in one way, and it's the lowest level of being rich. God wants us to be rich in other ways, definitely rich in character. In verse 2, it says, And he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. This was the harvest time for sheep rancher because it was like the harvest time sheep shearing uh, was a time of lavish hospitality towards others. And so this was a time of celebration. It was a time of everyone getting paid. It was, it was a time of party. And that's what it was and that's what it was meant to be. And so this is a good time. But we're going to see that this foolish man... Um, is not, <laughs> he's greedy, not only just, he's foolish in so many ways, but he's greedy and he's just dumb. He's a dumb guy. Abigail, a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance, it says in verse 3, Nabal's wife was both beautiful and wise in contrast to Nabal himself. The Bible gives Ab- Abigail great praise when it says that she was beautiful in appearance because the only other women who have this Hebrew phrase applied to them were, are Rachel in Genesis 29:17 and Esther in uh, Esther 2:7. And so wisdom and beauty and it's a trip because you wonder well how did they get together if he's so dumb if he's an idiot if he's foolish if he's all of these negative things how did he get to be with this beautiful wise woman well, a lot of times uh, marriages were arranged in this time. And so, you know, a young, young set of parents could see their kids coming up and say, hey, you know what, you're doing well, we're doing well, why don't we go ahead and dedicate these two kids to be married and we'll bring them together at the right time. And so um, if Abigail does something, she shows how to live with an idiot, how, how to navigate through life with somebody who is anything but what you would hope for or want to be with. And it's a trip because she's faithful in this area and you're able to extract this incredible wisdom from her, this wise woman. Verse 4 says, When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing sheep, David sent ten young men and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel. Go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you, peace to your house, and peace to all you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Your shepherd were with us, and we did not hurt them. Nor was there anything missing from them all the while they they were in Carmel. Ask the young men, and they will tell you. 
Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son, David. Verse 9. So when David's young men came, they said to Nabal, according to all these words, in the name of David, and waited. And so what David is doing is, David protected his men, his army of men, protected the outer edges while Nabal was doing, and his men were doing what they were supposed to do in the fields. So now it's harvest time, and the fruit of their labor, the the wages are going to be paid now. So David sends his men to Nabal to tell him, hey, it's time to pay us. We did a job, now it's time to pay us. It looks almost like, um, I don't know, mafia, like, like, hey... We protected you, and so now, you know, you got to pay us because uh, we'd break your legs if you don't. It's nothing like that. In this culture, this is what they did, and this was appropriate and proper, what David is asking for. But because Nabal is foolish, notice his response in verse 10. Then Nabal answered David's uh, servants and said, Who is David, and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away, each one from his master. So first, Nabal has this misunderstanding and this misconception of David. Did David break away from his master? No, David is running from his master. If anything, David was faithful to God, and his master didn't like that, and so he wants to kill him. Verse 11, shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who I do not know where they are from? And so Nabal has a my problem. He thinks that he has the ability to do all that has come to him and he's a selfish person. It's not his. It's the Lord's and the Lord had blessed him with it. And if you're ever blessed with anything, you're blessed to be a blessing. It's never just for yourself. You can rejoice in the blessings that you have, the wonderful things that you have access to, but never think that that is just for you. And so nothing godly about this guy, nothing remotely right about what he wants to do. And so he's pretty much punking David at this point. And he's saying, who's David? Who's the son of Jesse? David's a mighty warrior. And you're going to be in big trouble, mister. Verse 12. So David's young men turned there on their uh, heels and went back, and they came and told him all these words. Verse 13. Then David said to his men, Every man gird on his sword. So every man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went with David, and 200 stayed with the supplies. So David's men now have gone from 300 to 400 to 600. He's going to take 400 men that are armed with him, and he's going to basically wipe out Nabal and everything that he has. And I find it interesting that David just experienced this incredible victory by allowing the Lord to fight his battles. He he experienced this awesome high in humbling himself in recognition that he shouldn't have killed Saul in the cave. And his heart is affected. His heart is convicted and then you got this little dude, Nabal, who owes him some chump change, some, some, you know, some, some money, and now he's going to wipe him out. He's telling his boys, lock and load, guys, let's go. We're going to go lay hands on this guy. We're going we're to be, basically, just, we're going to kill everything that he has. And I think we need to be careful after a victory, after great victories. 
Oftentimes, the enemy will come with this little nothing thing and destroy us. And I don't know if it's because we think that in the great victory, we've contributed to it. All we did was yield and surrender to God. And God was able to do this incredible victory through us. But I don't know what it is about humanity. When God begins to use us, God begins to give us these incredible great victories that I don't know if it's we just get uncomfortable, we get dumb. I don't know what it is. You look at Peter, Peter in the garden. Peter, Jesus says that everybody's going to basically leave me. Everybody's going to betray me. And Peter, chest sticking out, says, Lord, if everybody leaves you, I'll never leave you. I'll be with you to the end. I'll defend you, Lord. And Peter sees two swords. He says, Lord, two swords. Look, one for me, one for you. We'll take them all on. Let's do this, Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he rises to action. And he chops off Malchus's ear, trying to defend Jesus. Jesus lets him know, put your sword away. That's not what we're about. We're not going to do that. And so I do believe that Peter truly believed that he was down for Jesus. He was down for the cause, and he would defend him to the end. And then all of a sudden, Jesus gets carried away to the cross. And a little girl asks Peter, hey, weren't you with them? And Peter begins to curse and deny Jesus. After this incredible victory of, Jesus, I'm down for the cause. I'm with you forever. A little girl asks him, and it causes him to cuss and to deny his Lord. And so again, I see that working right here with David. I see this incredible victory that he's able to say, Lord, you're my defender. Lord, I trust in you. I'm going to let you fight my battles. You anointed me as king over the nation of Israel. Right now, Saul holds that position. But I know in your timing... I'll possess it if you want it for me. So I'm going to let you take care of King Saul, and I'm going to lay my hands off. And then in the next chapter, we see this guy doesn't pay him because he defended his crops and his vineyards and everything that, while he was working. And now David's going to take 400 men, and he's going to wipe this guy out. So again, I think we need to be very, very careful. Verse 14, Now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us on both, uh, wall to us both night, by night and day, all the time we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore, now know and consider... What you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his household, for he is such a scoundrel that no one can speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seas of roasted grain, one hundred clusters of raisins, and two hundred cakes of figs, and loaded them on a donkey on donkeys. And she said to her, to her servants, Go on before me. See, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her her husband, Nabal. And so Abigail gets wind of the situation through one of their servants. And the servants communicates to Abigail that, look, David came and he, or David's men came to talk to your husband, Nabal, and told them everything that they did, how they protected us, how they watched out for us, how they looked after us. And then they came to collect. And your husband, Nabal, he's like, nah, I ain't giving them nothing. So she recognizes that David is coming with these men and going to wipe everything out. And she acts. She takes matters into her own hands. 
She recognizes not because of her husband, but in spite of her husband, she needs to do what's right and obey the Lord. And so she takes all of this stuff as a present to be able to give it to these men, to intercept them. As they're riding into town, this caravan of stuff is going to come and it's going to meet them and she's going to get out and speak to David and let him know, look, this isn't how this should have went down. And so her wisdom is going to come through. And so, you know, how do we conduct ourselves when dealing with an idiot that we're associated with, somebody who's in close contact? We ultimately recognize that our obedience and our allegiance is to the Lord first and foremost. That it's to the Lord that we need to obey. I don't know where husbands and wives got off in the church thinking that husbands are supposed to run the lives of their wives. I don't see that in the Bible. I definitely see this idea of submission where a wife is submit to submit under the authority of her husband. But I don't see that a husband is supposed to run the life of his wife in the scriptures. If my wife and I have, agree, have disagreed on anything over 31 and a half years of marriage, it's maybe been about three things that I've had to trump any, anything of a decision that we're going to do in life. And so I just don't know where that comes from, that idea where I get to tell my wife what to do. Abigail is obedient to God first and foremost. And she's disobedient to her husband when he causes her to disobey the Lord. Again, first and foremost. And then you let the chips fall where they may. And so I just find it interesting where we've come from or where we've come to in the church today. I am a fool like Nabal if I don't take advantage of the wisdom of my bride. God has given both of us gifts. We're equals. Nobody's superior. Nobody's more profound than any other. As equals, I submit under her wisdom, gifts, wonderful things that God wants to speak through her to me. And I'd be foolish not to. Before wives are called to submit to their husbands in the scriptures, God says there's a mutual submission that is to take place. Submit ye therefore one to another. Then, he says, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. And so Abigail is just this incredible just picture of a wife who's doing what's right by God, first and foremost. Verse 20, so it was as she rode on the donkey that she went down under cover, uh, under cover of the hill, and there were David and his men coming down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him and he has repaid me evil for good. That's a true statement. But what you want to do with that, David, is not true. Verse 22, may God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. So look at what David's doing. He's going to take matters into his own hand. He's going to force the issue. He is going to, because now he has this position of authority, take these 400 men, and he's going to wipe out Nabal and all that are the servants in his home. 
And that's not going to work out well. When we take matters into our own hands, it doesn't work out well. Verse 23, now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David and bowed down to the ground. So she fell at his feet and said, on me, my Lord, on me, let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. In humility, she's going to come at David and you're going to see profound wisdom spoken through this woman's lips. Verse 25, please let my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal. For as his name is, so, he, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal. And now this present, which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and to seek your life, but the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling, and it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel, that this will be no grief to you nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. And so in profound wisdom, she comes and her caravan of stuff and her riding on the donkeys following it sees David and his men coming. She intercepts him. She gets off of her, her donkey, bows down in humility, and then just speaks mad wisdom. Just incredible wisdom coming from what she's saying. This, in this appeal, Abigail did many things very right. In verse 18, jumping back up there, when she first heard of the crisis, she immediately went into action. In verse 18, it says, And Abigail made haste. She knew that this was an urgent situation, and so she acted with urgency. I see nine things from this uh, account that Abigail brought to David. Number two, after just uh, recognizing that it was urgent, In verse 24, with her first words to David, Abigail immediately took the blame on herself. She said, on me, my Lord, on me, let this iniquity be. Abigail didn't do this because she was really believed, she really believed she was guilty. She took the blame because she knew that David would punish her differently than he might punish her husband, Nabal. And so she assumes the responsibility. Number three, in verse 24, Abigail asked permission to speak instead of taking command of the conversation. She said, please let your maidservant speak in your ears. Number four, in verse 26, 
Abigail smoothly suggested the positive outcome to David in her appeal. She said, the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands. She stated it in a way that almost guided David toward her suggested outcome. You don't want bloodshed on your hands. You don't want to have a reputation as a king of doing this stuff by force. Number five, in verse 27, Abigail brought David a present. She writes, now this present, but was wise enough to say that it was for the younger men who followed David, not for David himself. To say that it was for David would suggest that he was in this for the money, and David's insulted dignity could be brought off, bought off with money. She didn't do that. She said, look, I have a gift for your men. Number six, in verse 28, Abigail plainly, straightforwardly asked for forgiveness. She said, please forgive the trespass of your maidservant. Number seven, in verse 28, despite David's present anger and agitation, which is clearly sin, Abigail spoke of David's character in high terms regarding his present unmentioned state as an aberration. She said, my Lord fights the battles of the Lord and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Number eight, in verse 28, Abigail reminded David of the Lord's promise for his life. She said, the Lord will certainly... Make for my Lord an enduring house. She guided David to look beyond the immediate aggravating circumstances to the bigger promise of God. And finally, number nine, in verse 31, Abigail asked David not to do something he would later regret when God's promise was ultimately fulfilled. She said that this will be no grief for you that you have shed blood without cause. This This is perhaps the single best thing that Abigail said. She wisely asked David to consider the outcome of his present course and how bad it would be. She asked him to let the Lord settle the matter instead of taking vengeance into her own hands. In verse 29, she said, The life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as the pocket of a sling. This is a strong point that she's making, but what she's doing is reminding David when he was trusting in the Lord and he had a sling. And he said, Lord's going to fight my battle and the Lord's going to give me victory when he went to fight Goliath. But he's saying like that rock that was sling out of your, out of your little slingshot, the Lord's going to do to your enemies. She's reminding David to look to the Lord. Verse 32, Then David said to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed is your advice, and blessed are you, because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning, like no males would have been left to Nabal. So David received from her hand what she had brought him, And said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. And this shows the heart of David. After God's own heart isn't a perfect man. An individual that is seeking God's will for their life is an individual that is able to say, wow, I was wrong. I was acting out of emotion. I was enraged. I was going to get vengeance and vengeance is God's. And so with this woman coming and speaking this wisdom to him, he's able to acknowledge, wow, I'm not going to do that anymore. 
That's very difficult for us. I don't know, again, that's just pride. That just It's hard to admit that we were wrong, that we were moving on a bad path in a wrong direction. But that's what it looks like when we have a heart after God's own heart. Verse 36, Now Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. Again, it just continues to show the wisdom of of, of Abigail. She's not going to speak to an idiot that's drunk. He's not going to understand anything she says in that moment. So she's going to wait until the next day. She's going to wait until morning. And so he's acting like he's got something to celebrate. He's having a party, not even knowing that somebody was on his way to wipe him out. And so you just see, again, the foolishness of it and the foolishness of living your life apart from God in trusting God and glorifying God and looking to God. Verse 37, So it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal and his wife had told him these things that his heart died within him and he became like a stone. Many believe that this was a stroke that he experienced and he was just numb. No, no, they don't know if it was the contribution of the alcohol, if it was just his time of God's judgment, God's going to finish him off. Or what was going on, the news of hearing that he was going to die and that his wife saved him. But whatever it is, it says his heart died within him and he became like a stone. Verse 38, then it happened after about 10 days that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. To me, that's a beautiful picture of David taking his hands off and letting God in his timing fix what he needed to fix. And so again, you see that as a result of this incredible wisdom that Abigail was able to bring to the situation and God using that wisdom. Verse 39, so when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. And David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as a wife When the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. And so it looks like David's multiplying wives, but he's really not. It looks like David is adding a second wife. He's adding a first wife for the second time. Saul had given David's wife, Michael, away to another man. And so no longer is he married to Michael or He will get her back in 2 Samuel, and she is a pain. But right here, he doesn't have her. And so he recognizes the wisdom and the beauty of Abigail, says, hey, why don't you come on over and be with me? Then she arose, bowed her face, and said, here's your maidservant, verse 41, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. So Abigail rose in haste and rode a donkey, attended by five of her maidens, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. 43, David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and so both of them were his wives. But Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Galim. When David adds Ahinoam, Ahinoam, of Jezreel 
as his wife, then he is multiplying wives. And that was forbidden in the scriptures. Deuteronomy 17, 17 says that when the nation of Israel begins to raise up a king, that king is not supposed to do three things. Don't multiply horses, get a big gigantic army because and then you think your army is going to defend you. I'm your defender. Don't multiply wives and don't multiply loot or gold, silver. Uh, David is going to struggle. Nowhere in the scriptures do you see a guy having more than one wife ever go well. And this will be no exception. Ahinoam Ahinoam will ultimately, uh, with David, give birth to Amnon. And Amnon will end up raping his sister. David would experience incredible pain in his family because of the multiplying of wives. So where his heart is given over to God as a man after God's own heart, and he knows how to repent, and he knows how to seek the Lord, he would fail miserably in that area, and that would be ultimately his, his demise and his fall. And so what I get from Abigail is just an incredible example of somebody who, in spite of a set of difficult circumstances, having to live with an idiot, all your life, and yet faithful to God. And so she, she shows us that in, in the midst of a difficult situation, you can still look to God and you can still be blessed in the process. What multiplying wives does for me as I read about it in the Old Testament is it reminds me that because it was a cultural norm and many of the patriarchs in spite of what God's best was, I believe God's best is one man with one woman over a lifetime. That's God's like ultimate desire for marriage. But I believe that God can work in spite of that best, and God can still bring blessings in spite of that ideal. And it doesn't have to be a second rate, or it doesn't have to be something that's inferior to God's best. Uh, But I don't think we need to apologize for God's best. When I see in the Old Testament these guys multiplying wives, what it does for me is it reminds me that there are probably things that we do within our culture that for whatever reason are unbiblical or unscriptural or in disobedience to God's best, but we find ourselves doing them nonetheless. And so instead of immediately judging this situation, I take what I can learn from it. Ah, Not a good idea to multiply wives. Look at how this is going to ruin David down the line in his life. I take that lesson, but I also try to take into account, because I want to apply the scriptures to my life, I also take into account what are some of the things that we do in the name of being Christians that um, are unscriptural, unbiblical, and we just do it either out of habit or this is the way it's always been done. And I think I gave hint to it earlier when I mentioned how husbands treat their wives in the name of being obedient to the word of God or being Christians. I think just in general, how we treat one another. I don't know why we give ourselves permission to be mean and rude to people when when that's against the Bible, let alone to do it to your spouse. And so it's not a tick for tack. It's not a because they treat me like this, I'm going to treat them like this. I'm going to obey God. Because God supersedes and my obedience and allegiance is ultimately to him. And I can't outgive God. He won't let me. 
So therefore, I'm going to obey God. And it may look like something from the outside. It, it may look like people can judge that and think whatever they want about it. But my obedience and my allegiance is going to be to God. And I think Abigail modeled that in an awesome way. As I was reading, I did come across maybe some negative things. You know, she didn't inform her, wife, her, her husband and that was sin on her part. I don't necessarily agree with that because had she told him that she was going to take this stuff to David, he wouldn't have let her. She would have ended up dead. Her husband would have ended up dead. And the servants would have ended up dead. And so I think she superseded in that area in obedience to God more than her husband. She shouldn't have talked negative in, in public about her husband. And she did do that. So with that, I agree. So she's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But she did talk negative And she called him a scoundrel. Uh, he's a fool, like his name says, she said. And so again, as I read through that, and I, I take that oh, little grain of salt. I mean, she had to put up with the not a good guy. But nonetheless, our obedience and allegiance is to God. And she is a wise and beautiful woman that we can take example from. She used her beauty in a way that glorified God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank Obey, Lord, in spite of circumstances. We can experience joy and peace because it comes from you. And I pray that that's what we would be about, Lord. Allegiance to you, obedience to you, looking to you, to glorify you, to love on you, to keep your commandments in the midst of all that goes on in our lives. And so thank you so much for the work of your spirit. Thank you for the examples that you give us within the scriptures, whether that be David or Abigail, even Nabal is a bad example. I pray that we wouldn't be foolish, Lord, in our lives, but that we would be wise, wise as serpents and harmless as doves. For your glory in Jesus' name, amen.